From the world of Sonic the Hedgehog, a new hero arrives. I am ready. Is there anyone stronger? No. Tougher? No. Funnier? I do not make jokes. I make warriors. Knuckles, now streaming only on Paramount Plus. Yes! And just like that, we're back. Another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast. It's Tuesday. It is September 7th, Year of the Lord 2021. But actually, where I'm sitting, it's Monday night. I'm all alone at the office. As I usually tell you, janitorial service actually has not come through because it's Labor Day night. I, full admission, was not even aware it was a holiday until a little bit after lunchtime today because Director Colin and I had been busy working on something that will soon be unveiled to the world. If you're following on Instagram, you kind of have an idea what it is in that Instagram story. Hey, speaking of the Instagram story, I got tons of good feedback on that this past weekend. Tried to tell you. I guess some people thought I was lying. Maybe there's some holdouts out there. If you want access, if you want to see behind the scenes, if you want to know what it's like at one of these games after players leave the field, after a game, before a game, before they let you in stadiums, before the TV broadcast comes on, just follow me. You saw some of it on Twitter. You saw a whole lot more of it on Instagram. I give you as much access as I can. And on the show, I give you as much information as I can. Try and mix in a little laugh here and there. Never know. When you're on, you're on. When you're off, you're off. Uh, but I appreciate the feedback because that lets me know you want it. So I will continue. We will be in Ames, Iowa Saturday. And I cannot put into words how excited I am about this one. You know, my proclivity and my my passion, just outright passion for Iowa State, never been to the state of Iowa before. So this is a big deal for me. It's a big deal for us because a lot of you have a lot of you have emailed me or you've DM'd me and you've said, listen, I'm a Nebraska fan or I'm a Texas A&M fan or I'm a Florida fan, but I found myself strangely rooting for Iowa State because I feel like it's kind of our team. Now, we did create our own team, Pate State. Pate State Freights stickers are on the way, by the way, getting those made up as we speak. But outside of that, a real-life on-field team, Iowa State, listen, I encourage you to pull for them. Uh, excuse me. I encourage you to pull for us. We're going to need all the help we can get this Saturday. So I'm headed up there Friday and looking very, very much forward to that. Okay, so we've got a full mailbag this morning. I told you it's Labor Day night as I'm recording, and about 15 minutes ago, so about three targeting fouls ago, I let you know on Twitter, hit me up with some questions. I'm going to hit as many as I can during halftime of the Ole Miss-Louisville game. That is where we are at right now. And I kid you not, I'm looking. We got over 200, somewhere between two and 300 questions, and like half of them are about targeting. I am irate about targeting. If you guys are watching, if you're not, if you did not see the game last night as you're listening now, just an egregious amount of targeting calls. And the thing about it is some of them were legitimate calls. I really disagreed with the first one. But independent of whether they were by the letter of the law targeting or not, that's not the problem someone like me has with targeting. I think I think Herbstreet mentioned it during the broadcast. He said something along the lines of when this rule, when we started to implement the targeting rules seven, eight years ago, it was a different game. There was a kind of hit. There was a kind of play that you were trying to get out of the game that was the reason. It was the impetus for instituting those rules. We've gotten it out of the game. You've totally changed the way the game is coached. You've now got a whole generation of players who have grown up in, for lack of a better term, the targeting era, if you want to call it that, and they've been taught the right ways to hit. Now, 99 times out of 100, when you see a targeting flag thrown, it is not for anything that was malicious, even though it may be by the letter of the law targeting. So someone like me looks around 
And understanding the temperature in the room, uh, I know we have to have targeting in the game. I know you have to protect the head and neck area. I get all that. That's not the problem we have. The problem we have is you got a game being played at 500 miles an hour. You've got fractions of split-second decisions being made. In many cases, you've got a defender already committing his body to contact before a ball carrier then decides to lower his head, which initiates helmet-to-helmet contact, and the running back never gets called for anything. It's only the defender. And our problem is not so much the 15-yard flag, although sometimes even that's a problem. The problem is watching the dude have to leave the game And if it's the second half, having to sit out the first half of the next week, that's insane. It's totally insane. Here, here, actually, I'll show you exactly how insane it is. Think about, as college football fans or just as people, how prone we are to argue about anything and everything. You call heads, I'm calling tails. You go tomato, I go tomato. I mean, you can disagree on anything and everything, and we oftentimes do. And yet, you could go around and poll college football fans, find a 1,000 of them, find 10,000 of them for all I care. You're going to get 95-plus percent consensus that people hate the way targeting is currently enforced or outright officiated in our sport. Everyone hates it. You know how hard it is to get 95% agreement amongst college football fans on something? You can't get 95% of them to agree the sky's blue. And you got 95-plus percent consensus, and even 95 may be a low number. I am stunned that this hasn't been revisited. Totally stunned. You're never going to take the rule out, nor do you need to. I'm not a believer in that. I'm absolutely a believer that the spirit of the rule needs to exist in college football. But I cannot believe that we have failed as a competition committee in the offseason, as a rules committee. I cannot believe that we have not revisited this total arcane approach of throwing players out of a game for, in some cases, doing what they're coached to do. And then something that's completely out of their control i.e. a receiver or quarterback or ball carrier adjusting the trajectory of their body impacts whether the defender is going to get to stay in the game or not. Totally insane. So a lot of you wanted to know about targeting. That's how I feel about targeting. I hope I haven't been unclear there. Okay, so let's dive in here. I'm going to go through as many as I can. Here's Here's a good one, actually. How much stock do you put in week one? It's a balance. Because I think a lot of a lot of you watch and maybe you overreact. I think some more people watch and they're too slow to react. I will tell you, I put more stock in week one than I used to. I used to I used to think I was overthinking the room and I just had all y'all fools beat and I was going to be the one that figured it all out in the preseason and figured it all out in the summertime when all those preview magazines came out, like that information wasn't available to everyone. Like the rest of you didn't have access to it. I'm the only one who has those magazines and I'm going to read every word on every single page and I'm going to know everything before the season starts. And forget about what my actual eyeballs tell me. I'm just going to stay married to that opinion that I developed in mid-July. Well, you can't do that. You cannot marry your preseason opinions. Anything you form in your mind about this season in July, you need to write it down, but write it in pencil. Make sure you got a fat eraser on it because you're going to have to do a whole lot of that. So I'll tell you. I put more stock in week one now than I ever have from an analytical standpoint, from an odds making and power rating standpoint. And I, we, I do my own personal numbers. I put more stock in week one than I ever have. You got to be ready to shift on a dime, but you have to have instinct about it and you have to know what to and what not to overreact to. Let me give you an example. Iowa, I've been watching a lot of Iowa because, well, I'm going to go see him Saturday. And so Iowa beat Indiana 34 to 6. That was a game that was a three and a half point spread. It was a game that a lot of folks were very worried that Iowa wouldn't be ready for. They've had some slow starts in the past. 
Indiana, you think about them, you think Michael Penix, you think the high-tempo offense and all the success they had last year. Well, then most of you probably didn't watch that game. I, I didn't get to watch it live. I saw score updates, and when I saw 34-6, to six, I said, well, wow, way to go, Spencer Petras. They must be just bombing their way up and down the field. I mean, they must be running roughshod offensively. Well, that's not what happened. What happened was you had two pick sixes, and so you break down the game a little bit more, and I think Iowa had a total of 20 points off turnovers. Now, that counts. Absolutely, that counts. It's a huge win for them. I'm not taking anything away. You find any way you can to win. You bear crawl over broken glass if that's what you have to do to win. If you got to make them turn it over five times, do it. My point is when it comes to a purely predictive, forward-looking mindset, you do not put as much stock into that as you would if Iowa would have beaten Indiana by the same score. But if you looked at the efficiency metrics, it would have been a purely normal game. They purely shut them down defensively. They purely went up and down the field and sustained 70-plus yard scoring drives every time they put a dent on the scoreboard. Now, that doesn't make the win any better that day, but as it relates to what I should expect from Iowa moving forward, you understand that A-B scenario. You think of scenario B as being a lot more sustainable. It makes you think of scenario B as stake, where scenario A could be cotton candy. That one could fool you. That one may not sustain you. So my point with Iowa is I watched Iowa do that, and I said, okay, I got a lot that remains to be seen for Iowa. Whereas you watch some other teams, and I'm going to use one here that's weird because you think so highly of them, but if you watched Alabama, Alabama removed a whole lot of question mark about their offense. Now you may think about that and say, well, what did they do? Improve to number one from number one? No, it's not about that. It's about what kind of grade I have on the team. So if I had Bama rated a 105.7 and then I ranked them a 107.7 this week, well, that means based on what we saw, I upped their value by three points. That's a big deal. Now, I'm not saying that's what we did. I'm saying that's a big deal. And we did upgrade Alabama. I'm not off the top of my head remembering what the number was, but we did upgrade Alabama. So anyway, I put a lot of stock into week one. I put more stock into week one than I do the entire preseason. Let me just say that. Having said that, I do put a lot of stock in the preseason too. It's just that the information that I value these days comes a lot more from on-the-ground intel than it does from preview magazines, thus coining the term preview magazine culture. Kevin up next. Kevin said, I need an objective opinion. How poorly did North Carolina play Friday? Well, it was bad. I mean, it was a very, very poor performance. I was supremely disappointed in their offensive line. And I think that took them by surprise a little bit too because that was not all environment. I mean, it's tough to go in there if you didn't watch it. They went to Virginia Tech Friday night and really could never sustain anything. It's tough to play there, but man, eventually... Even some of the rattled teams get it in gear, but they never really got it in gear, and their offensive line really suffered. I mean, really struggled all night. And it almost it makes you wonder, is that the kind of team that can get it together and right the ship, and all of a sudden three weeks from now you're looking back and you're remembering that week one debacle and saying, wow, I can't believe this team that I'm watching now had that kind of struggle just one month ago, considering the fact that they're just moving up and down the field on people now. I don't know about that. They're going to score. I mean, North Carolina is going to get theirs. But I don't know about the sustainability that I thought and I hoped that that offense would have this year. And I'll tell you what that did. I think it took what otherwise would have been a very disheartening setback from Miami. Even though Miami didn't play a conference game, they got humbled by Alabama. But it probably took what would have been a very disheartening loss for Miami and 
kind of puts it in perspective of, okay, well, if North Carolina played Bama, it would have been every bit as ugly. Game on. Let's lick our wounds. Let's go try and take care of Appalachian State this week. Then we got Michigan State. But then we get into conference play, and ultimately this division is still going to come down in all likelihood to that game in Chapel Hill. That's the mentality you have to have. And so let's go take care of business. And if we take care of business, we still have a lot to play for. I think, if anything, that Friday night game for North Carolina and the loss gave a lot of programs hope. Well, some programs, not a lot of programs. But also, here's the other question. What do we make of Virginia Tech and Justin Fuente? I mean, this time last year and and later into the year than just this time last year, he was on the hot seat. It, It was just it was assumed by yours truly, among others, that he was going to be out the door. And then they beat Virginia at the very end of the year, and now they start the year like this. I don't know. I don't, I don't hear anyone talking hot seat about Justin Fuente right now. Well, let's scroll. Let's roll on. H. Cortez has one. How is the return of college football going to galvanize communities around the country, specifically those communities that depend so much on the football season for revenue? Look, I'll, I'll say this. I just knocked my water bottle off the desk. I'll say this. I was borderline overwhelmed by what I saw this weekend, and that's coming from someone who expected what he saw this weekend. But it's just been a little while since we saw those full packed houses coast to coast, but also just a coming together of people. You know, I was in Charlotte, obviously, over the weekend, and I was around a lot of people who were either dressed in red and black or dressed in orange and purple in some cases. And these are not people who all believe the same things. These are not all folks in College Station when they were doing Midnight Yell last Friday night, one of the most amazing spectacles I've ever seen that I haven't witnessed in person yet. Those people don't all share the same political views or religious views or anything of the sort. There may be a 60-40-70-30, but it's certainly not unanimous. It's not total consent across the board 100%. You can't tell, though, is the point, because no one's really focused on it. At these events, the stuff that brings you together allows a filtration process to happen by which the stuff that divides you is supposed to go through that filter and then filter out. And what remains in the filter is the thing that's bringing you together. That was on full display, and I was overwhelmed by it. I mean, I observed it on the streets in Charlotte, but we observed it across the country. Did you see that scene in Madison, Wisconsin? That's a noon kickoff. I remember not too long ago, the University of Wisconsin struggling to sell out those noon window games, those 11 a.m. Central Time games, and it would be just chunks of open stands, and people would complain afterwards that you need to give us more 3.30 or 7 or 8 o'clock kickoffs because we don't like these noon games. (laughs) place is on fire. That place was insane. The Fox crew, I think, did a great job of of really showcasing the tradition there from third quarter to fourth quarter of playing jump around. And that's awesome. That's not something I've been able to experience in person, but that was awesome to see. But my point is you saw it in a number of different venues across the country. And what you're talking about here, that's the key. What the question was is how is college football going to galvanize communities That's how it does it. I've always looked at it as a campfire. I look at college football as a huge societal campfire, maybe even a bonfire if you want to make it that size. But a campfire on a 20-degree night does not erase the cold. The temperature does not change. It just makes the temperature somewhat irrelevant because you get close enough to that fire, you don't care about how cold it is. You're perfectly willing to sit out there all night. You've got a heat source. It doesn't matter. And in this particular case, 
the cold weather is all this garbage that we disagree on, half of which we have no business disagreeing on, but we disagree on it nonetheless. That's fine. I'm not here to talk about that. You know that we pride ourselves on even this show being one of those filtration devices that brings us as an audience together in lieu of all the other garbage out there that we may disagree on. But since you have that bonfire that is college football, you are drawn to it and communities can rally around it and they can turn their back on the cold. They can turn their back on all that stuff that you find on any kind of cable news network or talk radio or billboards or walking around the subway station at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You may find it and hear it and be exposed to it elsewhere. Scroll up and down social media for 5 or 10 seconds. You see what I'm talking about? It doesn't have to be that way on Saturdays for us, though. And on this show, we just maintain that energy year-round so that if you never want to let go of it, you never have to. That's the entire premise of this show, to give you something for maybe 30 minutes or one hour per day that's an escape, and you can come to it, and it's there. You know you can depend on it as much as you can depend on the sun coming up, unless someone's on vacation around here and we can't do production. That is the entire premise of this show, and we modeled it intentionally to mirror the kind of product that gives you the same feel as college football itself does. That's a good question, though. I could truthfully do an entire podcast on that one topic. Let's roll on here. Next question, are Clemson's problems fixable? O-line, run game, pass pro, etc. I don't know the answer to this. Normally I answer right away. I don't know the answer to this. I will tell you my thoughts as I was watching that game live the other night, and they haven't changed since then, is I've got a lot of concern about Clemson. I told you on the show Sunday night, if you watched or listened to Late Kick Live, I do not view this path for Clemson as a foregone conclusion that they're going to march through it totally unscathed. There's no way they lose a game. No, there's no way they're going to be anything less than a double-digit favorite every week. I'd agree with that if you told me that. But double-digit favorites occasionally lose. But more importantly, teams that have some of these flaws lose. If you can't protect your quarterback and you have no depth behind him, by the way, that you can depend on, those kinds of teams end up losing sometimes. If you don't have the kind of receiver speed not talent, speed, that can pop the top off a of defense and or the kind of offensive line that can protect the quarterback long enough to take advantage of that speed. If you don't have either one of those elements, I know Clemson is supremely talented. I know they are the class of the ACC. That's not an invincible team, though. As long as they have those problems, that's not an invincible team. What that is, is it's the kind of team that you wake up on Saturday and you're checking point spreads and they're favored by you know 23 and a half on the road at Pitt or something like that. And then all of a sudden it is 17 to 16 at halftime and it's 23 to 21 at the end of three quarters. And then all of a sudden Pitt takes the lead and then Clemson marches down the field and here we go. It's 28 to 27 and Pitt's got the ball, the chance to win it because they force a turnover. That's that kind of game because you don't have pull away ability. Now the question on everyone's mind there is really, well, How did Pitt find a way to be in the four-touchdown range against Clemson? Well, that's tough, but you also don't know if you force turnovers, anything can happen. My point is, I don't know that Clemson's problems are fixable if by fixable we mean getting them good enough to do what I predicted them to do, which is win a national championship. Do I feel great about that pick right now? No, I do not. Am I glad I didn't bet money on it? Yes, I am. I was uh, taking a little time out there, even though you couldn't tell, so I don't know why I'm even revealing that to you, because the wonders of post-production mean I could have just kept it to myself. But anyway, I was scrolling through the podcast reviews, trying to see how many five-star reviews we have, 1,770, by the way. So 
the march to 2000 continues, I would strongly encourage us to get there. You never know what kind of prize is awaiting at the 2000 five-star review threshold. Also, some of you have been sending me testimonials or outright photo evidence of you stealing your family and relatives' phones and giving us five-star reviews. I'm all for it. I totally endorse it. But anyway, I was scrolling here and I saw that I have missed some questions in the podcast review. So Joseph gives me one right here. I tried a few other podcasts. I stuck with Josh. So can us Auburn Tigers get a shout out? Well, of course I'll give you a shout out. And I will say this. I don't care that you played Akron Saturday. I don't care. It looked good to look good. I I really enjoyed going back. I watched the condensed game on the flight home, and it really was nice to see an offense move up and down the field. It was nice to see Bo Nix be in a groove. Haven't used those words in the same sentence in quite a while. It was nice to see. It's a nice little palate cleanser. And even though you may not go on and win 10 or 11 games this year, at least you're off to a good start. At least it makes you look at week three at Penn State, and it makes you say, yeah, we got a, we got a shot there. We absolutely have a shot there with LSU's loss. It makes you look at that trip to Baton Rouge down the road, and you don't feel like it's such an insurmountable task anymore. I'm always a believer of getting that cupcake game in week one. I'll let the rest of the athletic directors schedule big-time marquee opponents in week one. At Pate State, we are playing directional FCS programs if we can possibly get our hands on one. I want cupcakes with all the frosting. I want it all over my mouth. I want to hang half a hundred by halftime. And then I want to get my backups and my backups and my walk-on some work. That's how I'd handle week one. Brian Harson in Auburn, well, the schedule was already made by the time he got there. That's exactly what they needed. And then get you a big, heaping helping of Alabama State this week, and then head up to Happy Valley and let the chips fall where they may against Penn State. Keep scrolling here, and JC's got one. He said, the content on this show is great, but he spends a little too much time telling me what he's going to tell me. I find myself hitting the 30-second skip mark often because it takes a while to get to the point. Yeah, guilty. Okay, we'll work on that. I'm not even mad at it. Still a four-star review. Here's one I wanted to get to, though. And I'm going to get to it really quick. Here we go. Andrew said something that I want to touch on. He said, I love hearing this guy say, thanks for letting me do what I love for a living. That's amazing. Keep grinding, man. This hit home again this week. Full disclosure, it does every time I go to a game. But I probably talked to like three or four people that I recognized or that had come up and said, hey, I listened to the show. And we would talk on the sideline before the game. And every single time I interact for the first time with someone else who's in, let's say, college football media, I always say the same thing. I say a version of, can you believe we get to do this? Now, a lot of them who listen to the show feel the same way I do. But we also know, and I've told you the stories before, of the first time I ever got to cover a game, literal heaven on earth, I got to cover a game for the first time, and I walked in a press box for the first time. And I had this picture, I had this image in my mind, as many of you probably do right now, of what it's like to walk into that setting and how people must act. Here's what I thought. I grew up loving this stuff. I eat, sleep, breathe college football. So I figured anyone who actually gets to cover it obviously feels the same way or maybe even stronger about it than me, so much so that they perfected their craft and they pursued every angle possible to get into the business so they could cover it. So needless to say, In my mind, I'm going to walk in this press box and there are going to be like 100 people totally freaked out of their mind, ecstatic. It's like a five-year-old version of JP going to a water park for the first time. That's what I envisioned. I kid you not. Some of you actually out there may think that's how it is. I walk in a press box for the first time and it's like walking into an office. It's like walking into 
a nine to five job on Monday morning down on Second Avenue and people are just walking in, punching the clock and then checking their watch. And then when is lunch? And oh, still here. Time's dragging. I was stunned. I could not believe it. It was that day that I realized there are actually people who do this who consider it nothing more than a job. And I was a nobody then. I still consider myself a no one now, but at least I'm able to have a more national platform now. But I swore. I mean, I told my general manager at the station I was working at when I got back from that trip, he asked me, how'd it go? You know, what was it like? And I told him, I swore, if I ever get to elevate in this business, I will never be like that. This is not a situation where, oh, you'll learn, you'll see. No, I am never going to be like that. And I have never gotten like that. I have never, ever, ever lost the same kind of passion I had when I used to beg my parents to loan me money so I could pay to go to, let's say, the SEC championship game at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. I mean, that was the highlight of my year. I asked for advances on Christmas presents in exchange for college football tickets. And now so many people listen to this podcast or watch the show that this company sees fit to send me anywhere I want to go every single week. We're talking about Viacom CBS, to be perfectly clear, saying, go wherever you want to go, fill out the expense report, just tell us what the damage is afterwards. That's what I was promised. That's what has been delivered. That's why I left the independent game to get into this game. But when I came here... I don't think I've ever talked about this. When I was in contract negotiation, I understood what we had to maintain. We had to maintain the same kind of grassroots feel. We had to maintain the same kind of raw authenticity with anything that this brand is a part of as we always had. It's the only way I'm ever willing to do this. It's why I insist on having creative control and executive production over everything we do. I was given that. I was given the freedom to go anywhere I want to, and we do it all with you in mind. I do it all with you in mind. It's why I insist on being able to kind of leverage those social media channels, like at Lake Kick Josh on Twitter and Instagram. If you look at that on Saturday, all I'm essentially doing with those is I'm thinking back to when I would sit in the stands and asking, what would JP up in section 328, what would he be fascinated to see from someone down on the field, like the access that I have now, what do you want to see that other folks never show you? Well, I'm thinking like you because I am one of you. And so that's why, you know, I get outside the locker rooms for Georgia Clemson. I show you what's going on down there. I show you what it's like when those teams arrive. I show you what it's like pregame before they've opened that place up to you. All that kind of stuff. I know you're interested in it because I used to be interested in it. I still am today. So as you see, this topic gets me a little bit worked up, but for all the right reasons. So man, yeah. Just again, I'll say it until the end of time, really sincerely, thanks for letting me do this because I really don't know what I'd be doing if it wasn't this. But I will tell you as we move on, we're starting to hit a stride right now that will really let us take the show wherever we decide we want it to go. By we, I mean you and I. And so we're really starting to scale and I'm very excited because we're going to have opportunities to do whatever we want to do, to have any kind of event we want to have, to make it whatever we want to make it. And that's very exciting because you don't get that kind of leeway unless you're getting traction and having success. And because of you, we are. So, you know, when I when I say I appreciate it, yeah, I'm thankful you let me do this for a living. But I'm also thankful because you're turning what used to be a little side project into a huge nationally recognizable college football brand now. And we're not doing it the conventional way either. So that's pretty awesome to me. All right, Marissa, I want to really get to this question she asked uh, because it pertains to week two. So we start to look forward. On Tuesday night on Late Kick Live, we do our 
next week's predictions. We don't wait until Thursday. There's a lot of thinking behind that. But anyway, I don't need to tell you about show formatting. But Marissa asked a really important question that we were asking a lot around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday prior, and that is which big upset could happen that no one is noticing right now. And I'm going to talk about it and give you a little preview right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. So Marissa asks, which big upset essentially could happen in week two? So let's just start scrolling here. I really think it's important. This is where talking about gambling, even if you don't bet, is really important for context. If I were to tell you, for instance, Pitt is playing Tennessee, and you don't really have a concept of odds making, you just think about the two teams, you would think to yourself, I think Pitt's got a good chance to upset Tennessee. Well, what if I told you that's not an upset? What if I told you Pitt... The University of Pittsburgh is favored by four points in Neyland Stadium. You know, so it's important for context. So let's scroll here. Uh, the first one that pops up is Florida. They're favored by 29 at South Florida. South Florida is a bad team. So even with Florida having Alabama on deck, I highly doubt that we see that one competitive in the second half. We keep scrolling. Toledo at Notre Dame is one to keep an eye on. Notre Dame's coming off a big game, so they'll have a little bit of short rest. This is a home game for them. They're favored by 16 and a half. So this is thought to be a competitive game. I'll tell you if you tune in at some point this week or at the very latest on that secret, super secret Friday night Instagram live gambling chat that we had late Friday night. I'm going to call it Friday Night Lines. Everything's got to have a cool name. I uh, I probably am going to talk about this one. It's not going to be a game we do an official breakdown on. It's what I'm saying. So a lot of the... A lot of the mainstream shows that I do per week, this podcast or Late Kick Live, when we do game breakdowns, it's the kind of game breakdown that has the most mass appeal. So Toledo, Notre Dame is not going to get official game breakdowns on those shows. But in that kind of setting, if you're in the chat and you want to know what my model is saying relative to the 16 and a half point spread that Notre Dame currently is favored in in Vegas, well, yeah, that's where we can spend three or four minutes on it. So let's continue. Ball State at Penn State. Penn State with Auburn on deck, Whiteout on deck. Coming off a big win, this is worth a look. Penn State's favored by 22.5. Now, when I say worth a look, I'm not calling for an upset. It's just the kind of game that could be closer than you're comfortable with. The one that fascinates me is UAB at Georgia. This could be one of, well, it's not could be anything. This would be one of the most well-coached teams that Georgia plays all year. Kirby Smart knows it. They've been talking about it internally for a while. UAB does not have the athletes to hang with them. But if you start handing them the ball, then they absolutely do. Because UAB's a good team now. When I say they don't have the athletes, I'm literally talking about not being able to go athlete for athlete with a top five roster in America. UAB's got a really good roster. They, they do have good athletes. 
And Georgia's favored by 26. They're coming off that big game against Clemson. Everyone was looking forward to Clemson. No one could have even told you they're playing UAB. Half the Georgia fans didn't know they played UAB in week two. So UAB's on long rest. They had a really, really good win in week one. And they're going to be dialed up for this. This will not be an easy game for Georgia. There could very well be conference games that Georgia plays this year that are tougher than this UAB game. Keep an eye on that one. A&M plays Colorado in Denver. A&M's favored by 17. I don't know what to think about that one. That's going to be one I'm tuned into, though. The one I think that has most people's attention from a pure upset potential standpoint is App State. They are at Miami. You know what happened to Miami last week. And they played Alabama, and they got beat up by Alabama. What you have to have caution about when you play Bama is not letting them beat you twice. And this is that spot. That's why this point spread's so low. Miami's only favored by eight against App State. Now, this is in Miami. There's no neutral site here or anything like that. Uh, Wisconsin plays Eastern Michigan. That one's four-touchdown spread. Texas, Arkansas, there's no real upset there. I mean, that's just that's a really good game. Uh, one final game, though, I wanted to touch on on the West Coast is Stanford at USC. This is going to be such a lopsided game. This is proof to you, by the way. If you believe that all Vegas ever tries to do is get 50-50 action on each side, you're wrong. You're just flat out wrong. You would not put USC minus 17 out against Stanford if your sole purpose was to split the action. Because there are going to be probably 75-25 or 80-20 public action splits on this game. USC looked better on the scoreboard than expected last week. Stanford looked horrific. It's the second straight road game for Stanford out of the gate. Stanford is not a good team. Southern Cal out-athletes him, and all that stuff basically goes into a pot, and the public mixes it up, and they think USC minus no matter what. You could make this thing probably USC minus 20, and the public action would still be the same. But it's 17, so let's keep an eye on that one too. That's just one to keep an eye on. I don't know that anyone believes in Stanford right now. And so, you know, naturally, that's the time when all of a sudden you turn on a game and you say, Stanford? Out of nowhere. Wow, this is not the same team I saw get buried by Kansas State. So those are some games to keep an eye on. The -the off-the-radar game that's going to be easily the most fun is Missouri at Kentucky. I mean, Kentucky offensively flipped the switch. Didn't think they'd be able to do it that quick. Flip the switch. And Missouri is, to me, the biggest dark horse team in the entire SEC. That one's going to be fun. That's a 7.30, I think it's the SEC Network kickoff. And so that's a 7.30 Eastern kickoff. So there's a lot. There are some high-profile games, two of them on the marquee, obviously, in Iowa, Iowa State, where I'll be, and Oregon at Ohio State. I think Texas, Arkansas is a really big game. But there are some under-the-radar games, like the one I just mentioned. I think Pitt at Tennessee is fun to watch. Remember, our criteria around here is different. We don't have to have playoff implications on a game to think it's going to be a good game. That's not college football. I'm just I'm letting you know if you're 19 years old and most of your coherent life has been spent in the playoff era, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be that one team on the road to 9 and 3 could face another team on the road to 7 and 5 and no one cared about anything the week prior or the weeks after. It's just that game, that Saturday, that's all that matters. And if you didn't notice Boy, we had that feeling this past weekend. If you were watching Florida State last night as I'm recording or two nights ago as you're listening against Notre Dame, no one cared that Florida State's not going to make the playoff. Uh, No one cared that Notre Dame may not make the playoff. It was just the moment. 
That's all it's about. College football, more so than any other American sport, is about regular season and moments in that regular season. No one talks about the Jets-Steelers game from Week 9 in 1993. That's not the way pro sports works. It's all about the playoffs. It is a playoff-centric model, which is fine. College football survived for 99% of its life in a different mold, and then all of a sudden it kind of got reinvented because of a number of factors in the room over the last few years. We don't do it that way on this show. So a lot of the games I'm talking about, they don't have playoff implications on them. I love the nine-tenths of the sport that's not going to ever get to taste a playoff. I love that portion of the sport, too. So we try and give it as much coverage as we can. That's all the coverage I got for you this morning, though. I would beg you, just beg and plead, five-star reviews in the podcast section. Share this stuff. That is what I'm most thankful for. Outside of just the raw listenership numbers and viewership numbers, the sharing. Anytime someone asks on Twitter, hey, what's the best podcast out there? I'm always getting tagged in it. I go on Instagram and 50 of you every hour, it seems, have put something along the lines of, I'm listening to this right now. You need to be doing it too in your stories and you tag me. Anytime on Twitter I'm logging in, it's constant people tagging and giving screenshots of them listening. That stuff is so important. I've told you before, I don't need to waste your time again. But thank you for that. Continue to do that. Follow on Instagram and Twitter at Late Kick Josh. We got Late Kick Live coming up tonight. It is prediction night for week two. I will see you then. Until then, for producer Jordan, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great Tuesday and God bless. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.